Business Class, a podcast sponsored by the iBear MBA program of the USC Marshall School of Business. Expert insight into the world of business. This is Dick Drobnik, the USC iBear program director, having the opportunity to interview Ron Summers. Uh, we're doing this on the sidelines of, the, of iBear's 30th annual Asia-Pacific Business Outlook. Uh, Ron, welcome to the iBear podcast series. It's great to be here and it's great to be back to the APBO. Tell us a little bit about your career. What did, what did you study as an undergraduate? English literature, Middlebury College. Okay. And that led me into the energy sector in West Texas, where I had an opportunity to meet George W. Bush when he had run and lost his congressional campaign as a very young politician. Those are early days. What, what years? These are the 1977, 78. Uh, oil was $50 a barrel then. Uh, the, the, the comment that had been made to me by an advisor was, there's more Learjets per capita in Midland, Texas than there are in Kuwait. You should go there as a young man. And I got into the energy business. I figured that anyone that can throw a chain could probably get a job down there. And that's exactly what I did. I became a roughneck on the drilling rigs of West Texas, uh, working my way up uh, onto the derrick, onto the derrick floor, and then ultimately uh, got involved in the oil and gas industry as a young man. And then fast forward, you, you got involved in this uh, Agency for International Development. Fast project. forward, I was invited to California to set up a small hydroelectric uh, project under Jerry Brown's first administration when he was the governor of California. That, then he had the nickname Governor Moonbeam. Governor Moonbeam, but he was very pro-renewable energy and small yes. high-head hydroelectric was what he was promoting. And he is still promoting. Still promoting, uh, it should be promoting. Yeah. And an oil company said, my God, doing a small hydro has got to be easier than drilling an oil well because it's horizontal and it's always going to flow and it's sunlight and gravity. Let's try that. And so uh, an oil company in Texas had bought a small engineering firm up in Redding, California. And that got me into the, uh, into the renewable energy industry. That got me invited by USAID to be a member of a delegation to go to India to advise the government of India as to what might be done by India to attract foreign investment into the Indian energy sector. And that, that was, was my the, great break. And that was the early 1990s? That was 1991, 1992. And it was one of those opportunities as a young man when you say, what's your choice here in life? Well, the choice was, my God, I could do more good here in the energy sector in terms of elevating economy, improving quality of life than I could anywhere else. And so I stayed in India. It was tremendous. So you were in India from early 90s until? I, I was there when Narasimha Rao was the prime minister. And because of the collapse of the Soviet Union, he had to open the economy and liberalize. So I was there literally from the, from the dawn of liberalization all the way till 2004, 1992 to 2004, where you could see the iteration and the positive trajectory of Indian o India opening up its economy. And of course, as it liberated itself into the free market system, the largest free market democracy in the world, you could see the, the, the improvement day by day. Last October, October of 16, we took the IBEAR MBA class, uh, 50 people that are 35 years old, 11 years of work experience, to understand better doing business in China. And our five Indian students, mid-career business people, were just flabbergasted by China's infrastructure. 
China opened in 1978. India didn't open till, until 1992. So a little bit of delayed start there. Uh, let's not bet against India. As it begins to uh, project itself into the first decade of the 21st century, I mean, you're seeing extraordinary uh, improvements, and particularly under the leadership of Narendra Modi, the prime minister. So I'm, I'm a big bet on, on, a long bet on India. And 54% of the population in India is under the age of 25. This is a youthful demographic, and they want change, and they want it today. What, what are some of the challenges that Prime Minister Modi and his ruling coalition uh, has to do to, to, make, to make it possible for the growing demands by these huge uh, uh, young population? Uh, and what are the opportunities for American firms in particular, but all, all private sector business going on. You know, the, the great challenge has got to be, uh, when you have a youthful demographic like what I just described, the great challenge has got to be, how do you manage expectations? Because everybody wants it today. And everybody's on the internet. There are 10 million cell phones being issued every month in India. So, so as we speak, uh, young people living out in the hinterlands of the country are becoming aware of what's going on in the rest of the world, as never before. I'm, I'm not sure that same freedom of, of speech, by the way, is available to China and to Chinese people. But nevertheless, you have a young population in India that's completely now becoming aware, and yet they're not seeing that beautiful hospital access. They're not having the access to a job or an opportunity. And, and accordingly, the prime minister is very focused on make in India. He's trying to attract manufacturing back into the country. Uh, the bargain that he's making with investors is you bring your technology and you set up manufacturing here in India and you're going to get a, a much faster clearance process to, to, to facilitate your, your investment. Uh, that's, that's the bargain that he's made. And of course, now you have to balance that or reconcile that with a, a Make in America new presidency of Donald Trump. That's going to be an interesting meeting when they, they finally get together this summer. So if I, if I were to say, what is the greatest challenge? The greatest challenge is eliminate corruption. Uh, at least minimize corruption, and I think he's done an extraordinary job at that. Uh, I think he himself is clean. His prime minister office is clean. It's, it's percolated down. He now controls 17 Indian states in a, in a country of 29 states in terms of his political party. The message is very clear. Clean it up and, and, and make transactions transparent and clean. That's happening. Uh, the business that we're doing in India now is much more transparent than ever before, and that is a relief. He's also unleashed this extraordinary competitive federalism. So, I mean, the, the classic story is, the anecdotal story is, is Chandrababu Naidu, the, the young chief minister at the time in the year 2000 uh, in the state of Andhra Pradesh, flying, not within his own state, but flying to Mumbai to catch Bill Gates before he left the country to say, sir, I want to run you through a PowerPoint on my 2020 vision. And it was in that PowerPoint where he attracted Bill Gates and Microsoft to invest in Andhra Pradesh and not in, not in anywhere else. In other words, rather than Bangalore, do it here in, in Andhra Pradesh and in Hyderabad. On the education issue, Please. I'd like to ask you something that's of direct concern to me as a director of the USC IBEAR MBA program. Um, typically, we have five to seven Indians in our class of uh, 50, 55 mid-career managers. Uh, this year, uh, for the first time, we've admitted some people and, and offered them uh, generous scholarships. They're very highly talented, uh, went to some of the best institutes in India and have worked for eight or ten years. 
and we've had a couple of people uh, turn us down. And they've turned us down and not because they're going to Stanford or they're going to MIT. They turned us down because of the fear of a bad environment or a difficult political social environment in the United States. And, and one, I believe, has gone off to a, uh, I would say, a second-tier school in England. And another one uh, maybe is going off to France. Is, is this, are we seeing something unique, or is this a, a broader concern that, that, that you sense or feel? I'm glad you raised the issue. I was, I was hoping you were going to say that, they're, that, that they were staying home in India because the opportunities are so enormous there, and why come to the United States uh, traditionally, which is what they would have wanted to do. But then there's the other issue of, uh, of, of is, there, is there going to be a welcome mat? Or is there going to be a welcoming environment? Am I going to be unsafe if I send my son or my daughter to the United States? Or am I going to, are they going to be able to come home at, at some point safely? Um, you know, what a tragedy that that is. I have to say that the, the, good, the good news is that the facts don't bear out that narrative. Uh, 165,000 students each year come to the United States from India. Uh, it is by far, it, they compete with China. One year it may be more Chinese students, the next year it's more Indian students. Uh, when you think about the revenues that that brings into the United States, just alone in tuitions and buying books and um, so forth, it's an enormous input into the United States economy. The, the educational sector in the United States is one of the largest net exporters of services. There you go. Uh, it's just it's huge. <clears throat> and, and I don't think it's properly recognized in Washington how big that is, but, but when you think of the, the additional piece of that, which is when you have a young person come and study at, at uh, USC or any of our great institutions, educational institutions in the United States, they're gonna, when they're complete with that education, they are going to be uh, our best ambassadors. And therefore, the more we can do of that, I've always been a big believer, let's double that number. Let's, let's find a way to get more of these people into the country. And, and therefore, I, I don't like hearing about H-1Bs being trimmed back. Uh, I believe that our great society, our great opportunity for the 21st century is an in innovation. And, and we can't do innovation alone anymore. It has to be done 24 hours in a day. And therefore, your logical partner is going to be India, so that when we're done at the end of the evening, we send over the file to our friends in Bangalore or Hyderabad or Chennai. They work on the innovation over there and then send it back the next morning, 24-hour innovation cycle. And therefore, if the, if the feeling is that we are, uh, that we are not a safe, uh, a welcoming nation, uh, to these young students who have so much to offer, and we so badly, all of us, want them to come here, then we need to, we need to actually do a little bit better job in our public relations because um, we want more of those bright young students to come to the United well, States it's, from every country. It, it's not just an India issue. We, we've had a, a, this year a, a, a Japanese uh, applicant who's fully sponsored by a, a major Japanese bank uh, admitted by us, and in early February he said, because of the political uncertainty in the United States, I'm going to go to France. We had a 40-year-old uh, Brazilian applicant uh, who we admitted with a uh, 15 to 20 years of work experience, progressing higher responsibility, excellent candidate. We offered him a very good scholarship, and after a little while he said, because of the political uncertainty in the United States, I'm going to go to France. But uh, going back to another point here, you're hoping that some of the bright young Indians are going to reduce their interest in coming overseas to study and are going to work in India because of the, the promising growth. Mm -hmm. 
that may happen in the future, but I would say 100% of our Indian students who are coming here are looking to stay here. They're, they're not looking to go are, are you finding also that even though they've, they're looking to stay, once, they're, once they've come and they've become educated, are you finding that more and more than ever before are now returning back? Because I'm also hearing that as well. In other words, the, the, the traditional model was come to the U.S., get your, get your master's degree or your Ph.D. And, and stay as long as you can. H-1B graduates mm -hmm. to a green card, yeah. graduates to a citizenship. Um, we're hearing about more and more students completing their education here and then having these extraordinary opportunities to go back to India to help India's private sector companies, these dynamic private sector giants, develop the country's infrastructure, develop Bharat, develop India, for India. That may be happening, but in our small little program, Advanced International MBA program, the at least in the last three, four, five years that I've been re-involved in it, they want to stay here. Some of them have not been able to get the mm. position they wanted and have gone back to India and, and have become very successful. But the, the initial effort is very uh, uh, concentrated to uh, get the visas uh, and, and stay on. And, and here's a perfect example that if we can simply tweak our uh, immigration policy, where we find a way to capture that eager group that would come to the United States, be educated in our universities, and then be welcome to stay. Absolutely. My God, that, that preserves the leadership of the United States in innovation for the next century. The other issue is, is H-1Bs. H-1Bs for India represent about a percent, one percent of their GDP. So I hope, and by the way, there's only 85,000 H-1Bs every year that's ever issued. There's only 700,000 or so H-1Bs running around the country at total. So in the end, if you consider the impact on the American economy, it's not large numbers, but it's a huge positive for our economy. So I, I pray and I promise that uh, from a business community standpoint, from a, from a strong U.S.-India advocate, uh, my, my message into the White House and into Donald Trump and into Wilbur Ross at the, at the Commerce Department and Rex Tillerson at State is, my goodness, uh, we've got to find a way to increase the number, not reduce that number. And certainly this is not job taking away, this is job addition. These are sure. people bringing talent and, and innovation into our economy. So that's my message, that, that we need that innovation to continue to grow. That's America growing by virtue of attracting those innovators to our country. Thank you, Ron. Thank Th you for coming Thank in. you so much. Business class. Expert insight into the world of business. The host is Dick Drobnik, producer Pankaj Bhushan, director Dan Griffin, web developer Rick Pine, and I am Robin Garthwaite. <laughs>